Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, a place for those who are committed to change the definition of leadership. Now, in today's episode, we're going to talk about the roots of social problems in America, how they've evolved over time and how they're affecting our younger generation. It seems like every day there's another incidence in the news that highlights our deep-seated social problems in our country. But if we don't take the time to step back, try to understand what's really going on, then we're never going to make any progress. Now, our guest today, Peter Barron, has recently launched his first book, If Only We Knew, How Ignorance Creates and Amplifies the Greatest Risks Facing Society. Now, Pete is a wise voice for his generation with the hopes of changing how we conceptualize what is required for the achievement of social justice. See, Pete is a rising senior dean student leader in the honors program at Fairfield University, where he was awarded membership into Phi Beta Kappa, the nation's oldest and most prestigious academic honor society. Now, before we get started, make sure to hit the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis. Let's get started. The 2022 season of Personalization Outbreak Podcast is brought to you by City of Hope, a world leader in the research and treatment of cancer, diabetes, and other life-threatening diseases. City of Hope has been ranked among the nation's best hospitals in cancer by U.S. News and World Report for over a decade. Learn more about City of Hope at cityofhope.org. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Peter? Thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Of course, of course, Pete. You know, we've got to uh, do one thing right today, and that is I want you to introduce yourself to the world. I mean, let's face it, you're going to be graduating here in a couple of years. You're already thinking about your your future. You've written a book uh, to help your uh, fellow friends and colleagues start thinking about theirs in, in a world that's much, much different than the world I grew up in. And so, first of all, I admire and congratulate you on your first book. I mean, I can tell you that having read it, it's very special, fueled with golden nuggets, and it's wise beyond uh, your years. And I wish I would have had a book like this uh, before graduating for co- from college, Pete. So, so thank you for that. Uh, I always, uh, and I also want to encourage our listeners and viewers to pick up a copy. Here's what it looks like. You can get one on Amazon, or you could visit the website at ifonlywenewbook.com. Ifonlywenewbook.com. So, Pete, in the book, you make the argument that our culture has collectively subscribed to certain values that, and that these values are at the root of our social problems. First of all, what are those values, and can you explain what this means? I'd be happy to, Glenn. The values I'm talking about in my book 
are the values of greed, selfishness, punitiveness, and short-term thinking. And while these values have sometimes have negative connotations, you might hear them and think they aren't really even values, the reality is that our structures of our society reflect and promote these values. So if I may, I'd like to offer a quick example of what I'm talking about. Sure. Milton Freeman, who many people consider to be the father of modern economics, he asserted that corporations only have one responsibility, and that responsibility is to increase the bottom line, increase the profits for their shareholders. They have no social responsibility to uh, protect workers' rights, no social responsibility on broader issues like racism or any other um, civil rights issues. It was only about profit. And this greed, this short-term thinking, this really this selfishness, um, while it may lead to some good, the negative effects of it may outweigh the positive effects. And I'd like to offer a few quick examples of what I'm talking about so you can see where these values have gotten us. First, we need to think about income and wealth inequality. Income and wealth inequality in our country is astronomical. And in 2013, some historians were actually arguing that our American society was more economically unequal than the ancient Roman Empire economy, which was built on slave labor. And that was 10, almost 10 years ago, 2013. And I think it's no surprise to anyone that we've become exponentially more unequal since then. As you always know, Glenn, employees are really frustrated right now, too. And, you know, there's a great resignation happening. And I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that corporations and the corporate world in general isn't concerned with their well-being because they're too short-sighted and they're only concerned with profit. I see firsthand in, in my experience at Fairfield University that students are experiencing higher levels of stress higher levels of anxiety, and there's so much more depression than any other uh, generation in the past has experienced. So let's just do this for a minute. Let's go back, or can you pick one other value that you highlight in the book? How is this impacting your generation? Well, I really think that, you know, the, the value that's impacting my generation the most is selfishness. And I think that our structures are leading us to think only about ourselves and you know, the, the money that we're going to make and whatever career is going to make us the most money. And that's leaving us unfulfilled. And it's leading us into occupations that really are a dead head for us because um, it's just it's short-sighted. And that's why you know, throughout this podcast, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about philosophy um, and why I feel that's important. But I think our structures are promoting these values that are actually harmful to us. Um, and it's really important for us to, to break down these standardized hierarchical structures. So, Pete, why do you think that something like selfishness that has been, you know, at the core of how large institutions have operated and have encouraged, why don't you think my generation uh, didn't see what you're seeing? Well, I think a lot of it is that we just didn't have any data or statistics to tell us that it was wrong. You know, when Milton Freeman said that shareholders only, I mean, corporations only have the responsibility towards their shareholders. Uh, that had never been tried before. But at this point, you know, it's been over 40 years now. We know it doesn't work. You know, we, we, we know that it's leading to more employees being frustrated. We know that there's a lot of problems that come out of uh, when corporations don't think about their social responsibility. So I think, you know, other generations, it's not really their fault because they couldn't see it, but we can see it now. And, you know, my book is, is about ignorance and about reversing our ignorance. And this is one of the things um, that collectively we're ignorant about. We don't you know, the statistics are out there, but we're not looking at them. And it's something that we need to start looking at. So Pete, why did you even write this book? I mean, I don't know. And I've never met until I've met you that that a college student would take the time to write a 296 word manuscript 
on if only we knew. I mean, what was the motivation? Well, it, it kind of just came out of nowhere. I, I was in my first class at Fairfield, which was an intro to rhetoric and composition class. And my professor was a rhetorician of a nuclear rhetorician. So she was talking about issues like that had to do with nuclear energy and, and nuclear weapons. And one of the things we were learning about was the U.S. radium company, which was the biggest radium producing company at the beginning of the 20th century. And I was learning that the powerful leaders of this company were intentionally keeping the information about the dangers of radium secret in order to maintain strength in their labor force and to increase their profits. And what happened was there's this whole scandal, there's actually a PBS documentary on it called The Radium Girls. And four girls who, who worked uh, for this company actually died of radium poisoning and countless others suffered health complications such as cancer because of it. But the, the powerful leaders knew about the dangers of this and they, didn't, they kept it secret. So I got this idea in my head that, you know, maybe there's information out there that we need to know that we're not knowing because people are keeping it from us. And I started talking to my professor in that class. I talked to some of my sociology professors. And then I started to do some research. And after about a month or two, I said, you know, this could be a book. You know, we could do all these things. And luckily, I had such great professors at Fairfield who encouraged me to embark on this journey to write a book. And everything just kind of went from there. I love that story, Pete. I mean, all of us have our own experiences. We see things and often keep those things or experiences to ourselves because they don't we think that may, maybe they don't have enough value to share. And so I'm so glad that you saw the value in going deeper. And that's what we all need to do now in this age of personalization. We, we, we're tired of the surface level stuff and we need to go deeper. And I'm so glad that you, know, you can inspire others from your generation to continue to go deep. Don't accept uh, what's on the surface. And this kind of takes me uh, to a quote that uh, in the book that really caught my attention. And you said, if we want to build a better future, we don't have to create a perfect society in which we account for and solve every problem known to man, but we do have to stop the forces that encourage the powerful to promote and amplify risks at the expense of others. It's a pretty weighty quote. I mean, explain these forces that encourage people to accept those misguided values that we were talking about earlier. And if you'd like to go deeper into that, that would be fine too. So the main force that I'm talking about, the main force that encourages the acceptance of those misguided values is our standardized hierarchical discourse. And in order to understand what I'm talking about, we need to go all the way back to the roots of this discourse, which starts in ancient Greece and uh, those philosophers, because all, all discourse is underpinned by ideology. And the ideology that Western society has kind of latched onto stems from Plato, who believed that there was in nature, there was just a, objectively a good, beautiful, and true with a capital G, capital B, capital T. And Westerners who came to power over really the entire world um, through imperialism um, came to see themselves as the embodiment of this good, beautiful, and true. And they started to view everyone else and everything else as measuring to them. And this leads to conceptions of hierarchy in our discourse and just our collective beliefs as a society um, that leads to a lot of problems. Because in reality, there is no one good, there's no one beautiful or, or one true. Um, there's a bunch of different goods, beautifuls, and truths. And we can see this just in easy examples. Um, first, there's beauty and diversity. And you know, while maybe Plato's ideology might have us think that one color or one variety is the most beautiful, 
we could just look at a painting and we could realize that a painting is beautiful, not because one color is the most beautiful, but because all colors are beautiful in their own way. Um, so when we're looking at diversity in society, you know, we can't think that one, you know, one race or one type of person, one way to act is the most beautiful, most, you know, the best way to act because we know just by nature that it's not. Another thing we need to talk about is truth. You know, I think the biggest problem with this, these, these standardized um, hierarchical discourse is that we believe there's one objective truth that only certain people possess. Um, you know, Glenn, you talk about it all the time, how leaders think they possess the truth, but they don't realize those they're leading also possess truth, just a different type of truth. And, you know, a leader might have more managerial knowledge, but they don't have the same type of knowledge that their employees do who are working every day. And it's the same thing in the classroom. You know, professors have a different type of knowledge because they've been studying, you know, what they're teaching for the last probably, you know, 25 or 30 years of their lives. But students, because of their different life experiences and the fact that we're growing up in a different generation, are going to engage with the content that's being taught in a completely different way than the professor. And what that means is that we have different types of knowledge and both of them are equally true. They're just true in different ways. You see, Pete, this goes back to, you know, why we're even having this conversation is how do we disrupt the status quo in leadership now that it's become less about the business or institutions defining individuals, but now how individuals are defining a path towards a shared mission. And you're, you're so right. I mean, people have been feeling so stifled for so many years uh, because we feel like we have to do things one right way. And now there's so much mass variation in what is true. Um, that it all really boils down to uh, knowing who we are as people. But that's tough when institutions have defined who people should be. Uh, what would you tell your generation about how it's important for them to navigate their lives on their own terms? Well, I think the main message I'd have to my peers um, would be to recognize that the standards that we're all measuring ourselves according to are not objective standards in nature, but there's something that man created and that there isn't one right way to lead your life. There isn't one way to, that you're going to find happiness. Um, you could lead your life in a thousand different ways. You could pick so many different careers and whatever, um, and you'll still find happiness. And the point is we need to break down this discourse that says there's only, there's one best way to live. Um, and instead, recognize that you have an authentic, individual, unique personality, um, and you need to explore what makes you happy in a unique way. And that's going to give you the most happiness. It's not by measuring yourself according to a standard. You know, it's interesting, Pete, when you said that. This reminds me of something I picked up in, in, my, uh, in, in my recent research, and that is people don't update the way they see someone as they evolve. Everything is a snapshot. And so I share this with you because, you know, the argument that you're making is so sound, but yet the people that have been leading these large institutions, this hierarchical, you know, discourse, um, it, it's, it's been to promote that snapshot in that one moment in time. So what do you, again, going back to your peers, what advice would you give them to make sure that people uh, continually update as it continually update how they see them as they evolve, because I think that's just much as our responsibilities as somebody else's. Yeah. You know, I think 
the thing we need to recognize, you know, why are people, um, yeah, why, why are people like repeating this cycle of, of not updating their view yes. of others? Um, and it's because you do as what you see, you know, if, if your parents parent you one way, you're probably going to parent your children the same way they parent you. But a lot of it stems from education. And I think, you know, I think people my age need to um, become aware of this because uh, I believe at least that we have a lot of power in changing it. Um, but our education sh system has been really focused on this idea of schooling instead of educating. And what I mean by that is that professors treat students like they're empty vessels and they're supposed to fill them up with knowledge. And there's one right way to think. There's one way to engage with this content. And, you know, that's it. And then what happens is when you grow up, you do the same thing with the people that you're, in, you're leading. Um, and you tell them there's only one way to do this. You know, this is how you do it. And, and then the cycle repeats. But educating is much different because education is about creating critical thinkers, creative people, people who like to collaborate and really just wise individuals. Um, and I think in order to make this shift to education from schooling, we need to embed critical discourse analysis in our education. What I mean by that is what we just did before going back to the, to the roots of Western civilization with Plato and understanding why our discourse produces standard hierarchical standards. Um, and when you embed critical discourse in education, you're sparking an awakening in your students um, so they can see that these hierarchies are not natural, that they're created by man. And because they are created by man, we can create something better than that. And, you know, I think when we realize we create something better, another big awakening happens is that the zero-sum game that we all subscribe to, that I can only win if you lose, um, is a myth. And when we realize it's a myth, that helps us rethink our obsession with competition that just creates such a stressful environment, and that's not conducive for learning, and that's not conducive for a good work environment either. You know, this one line that you just said is so powerful. Hierarchies are not natural. Um, how does this, how, what does higher education, you know, let's go here into higher education because I know this is a big area of emphasis for you, is what do we need to do in higher education to break down that discourse that, that and give people an understanding that it, hierarchy is not natural, that it doesn't have to be the way it's always been? Yeah, like I said, I think it really stems from this critical discourse analysis and leading to an awakening that makes us rethink our obsession with competition um, because students, go deeper with that. I'm sorry, Pete, go deeper with what you mean with this obsession with competition. Well, what I mean is that students and teachers institutions right now are treated as separate entities. And what they really need to be treated as is people that need to work together um, because collaboration and cooperation presents a much more effective and a better, less stressful way to learn. And I think we could understand this by looking to just uh, evolutionary science. A lot of us have an idea of evolutionary science based on Darwin's model of survival of the fittest. Um, but in reality, and we've actually seen this in, in science, there's Lynn Margulis, who's an evolutionary biologist, uh, proposed this theory of endosymbiosis, which is actually um, much more substantiated than Darwin's original theory, that says that cells learn to live together, not by destroying each other so that the stronger survive, but by merging with each other in a mutually beneficial relationship known as symbiosis. And that's a really powerful thing to think about, and especially when we apply it to education, because we could realize that focusing solely on competition does not take into account the notion that relationships and cooperation also play a central role in the intellectual and social development of individuals. 
And I think that's extremely important and we, to, uh, for students because students learn better when they're not stressed out and they don't, it's not a cutthroat environment. No one likes to be in a cutthroat environment. Um, at least the stress, it, it ruins friendships. And I think when we recognize that working with others and caring about your social skills and emotional skills isn't just nice, but it's actually better for our learning, that would, you know, that's going to blow the doors wide open. We could actually start making some significant progress and um, creating wise individuals in this, this new education that breaks down hierarchical standards. So Pete, where does personalized education come into this equation? Well, personalized education is extremely important because it, it seeks to improve quality of life. Um, and I think that's the first thing we need to talk about here. And when I'm talking about quality of life, quality of life as I see it includes satisfaction with your work or what you're studying, um, minimal stress, anxiety, and depression, uh, appreciation for diversity and different opinions and thoughts, and a motivation to do things that are bigger than yourself um, and things that are for the common good. You want to create a better world for others. And in my book, I talk about ignorance as the, the really the main problem in our society. And a personalized education trains critical thinkers who can see through the hierarchical standards that create this ignorance. And, you know, let's just think about a couple of the, the big problems in our society right now. You know, anxiety and depression is, is a big one, especially among students and workers. And a personalized education, especially one that's rooted, rooted in philosophy, will help students zoom out and recognize that the standards that they've all been subscribing to for the last 20 years of their life um, are not natural. You know, they're man-made. And when you zoom out and you stop measuring yourself according to those standards, your anxiety and depression is going, those levels are going to go down just because you don't have all this pressure to live up to this unattainable, objective way to live. Um, another thing we need to, we could think about is the fact that the United States is going to become a majority minority country by 2050. And we need to learn to recognize the beauty and diversity or else you know, we're not going to make it as a country because um, right now we already are seeing, you know, the pitfalls of having high racial tension. You know, we saw tragically in Buffalo over, over uh, the weekend, um, you know, a racially motivated shooting. And I truly believe that a personalized education that breaks down these hierarchies will let people see that there's beauty in everything. There's not one way to, to live that's better. Um, and that's going to improve social relations and that's going to lead to a better environment um, for learning. Pete, as we wrap this up, I have one, one final question for you. Um, I actually believe that we live at a time where we're experiencing what I call the inclusion illusion. We're focusing so much on diversity and not inclusion. And we are making you know, progress. We've elevated awareness. But I'm concerned that we're taking this old hierarchical uh, standard of the past and using it to try to solve for inclusion when all it does, it gives us the illusion that we're all feeling a sense of belonging where we feel seen, known, and welcomed. What are your views on that from your generational perspective? Well, I think that's, that's a great way to look at it, Glenn, because I think especially even the term inclusion, um, it carries this, this notion like who's doing the including. And, and what's inherent is that is like the, the white people are doing the including, like, yeah, we'll bring you in. Um, but really, we need to break down the whole hierarchical standard that, you know, the white people should be the ones like inherently that that have to do the including. Um, and I think we're just really leading to more assimilation. Yeah, we'll include you. You have to do it our way, though. You know, it's in our standards. Um, and that's why I think a personalized education is so important, because 
you know, one of the things I love about Fairfield is in the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield, you're able to design your own major. And I was able to take advantage of this. And I designed my own major around the question. And even though like, a lot of my majors is rooted in sociology, um, I kind of rejected that standard of a way to learn about sociology. And instead, I created a major around the question that is, are socioeconomic, socioeconomic inequities inevitable or avoidable? And now, because I've done that, um, of course, I'm still learning the same content I would have learned if I picked up, you know, a sociology major and a philosophy minor and a couple other things. But in, in the content is very important. But how the content relates to me is equally important. Um, and that's why a personalized education is, is so great is because it would allow students um, to break free of these standards and say, OK, we'll include you in our standards. It lets them set their own standards. Um, and then you have to include them. There's no choice. You know, they're, they're in it now. Um, and that's really what, where education needs to go. Well, Pete, I'm so proud of uh, who you're becoming, where you're going. And I'm just, just in awe of the way you think. And you're an inspiration, uh, not only to me, but I know to uh, not just your generation, I'm sure your parents as well, but uh, to society. You keep up the great work. And I want to, again, encourage everybody to pick up a copy, If Only We Knew, by Peter Barron. Pete. Great to have you on the show, and thanks again for your time. Thank you, Glenn. Now, as I always leave the show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't. Pushing and prudence says quit. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution. Learn more about City of Hope at cityofhope.org.